It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. As Carrie said, we have a, a lot of visitors with us. We had a lot of celebrations going on this weekend. We had weddings, we had graduations, and of course we have Mother's Day today. And I want to echo Carrie's sentiment and thank you for the blessings that we have and all you moms that are here with us today. And I apologize, the, uh, the lesson is not very Mother's day -y. Um, We continue looking in the book of 1 Corinthians <clears throat> and looking at where we started as we're moving through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I want you to imagine a church that was racked by division, a church that had a, so many problems that even uh, one of the men was having an affair with his stepmother. And instead of rebuking that individual, it was actually celebrated that as if God's grace was covering those things as a backlash against the rampant immorality that was going on in this congregation. There were those that were advocating for celibacy, whether married or not. There was debates that raged on about women's role in the church. There were debates about personal liberties and what could go on. And as if all of that was not enough, those that were, could speak in tongues and those that had these uh, spiritual gifts that were given to them, they were clamoring for each other's spiritual gifts and they were puffing themselves up. And at the end of all of it, you had a group of them that didn't even believe in a bodily resurrection. And that was the church in Corinth. And it's not unfamiliar than a lot of churches today and religious organizations today. The problems that have arisen because of the world and its influence on the church. And Paul is dealing with that throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, when you look at the different books of the Bible and you look at Books like Roman, Romans is a very theological standpoint, and he goes through a lot of things. But Corinthians, there's not a lot of theology. There is just hard information, application, understanding principles, and I believe it's good for us to go through these things and understand them. So as we look at our breakdown of 1 Corinthians, and we begin to see how what the major themes of 1 Corinthians are, and as he begins... The, at the beginning, it's, he's dealing with divisions and he talks about depravities in the next couple chapters. There's personal problems, questions that people had written to him and he's answering those problems. He then talks about worship problems and nested in that worship problems is this section that we read a lot on chapter 13 about love. And I find it interesting that Paul put the love chapter in there when he's talking about worship. And you'll see as we go through this why he does it the way he does it. Because all of these problems that they're having, whether personal or immoral, all of that, they're the relationships that they need to have with one another, the love they need to have with one another, the love they need to have with God. So that handles all of those relationships. And then the outflow of that on the other side of that is your love and your worship to God. So it's perfectly put in there as God is perfect in everything that He does as He goes in and talks about worship. And He concludes by talking about, in chapter 15, about the resurrection. So kind of to get everybody caught up to speed where we are, in, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about the position that the church at Corinth had, that they were saints and that they were sanctified. And being in that position in Christ... They had certain possessions. They had the grace of God. They had the mercy of God. They had all of this spiritual wealth and all these spiritual gifts that had been given to him. And he uses that as a springboard to get immediately to the crux of their problem whenever he says, there's some of you that are following after Paul, some of you that are following after Apollos, there's some of you that are following after Christ. And he, goes, he tells them the problem with that. Whenever you start focusing on men the cross loses its power because you're turning people away from the cross and you're not turning people towards the cross. We learned in that what our focus should be and our focus should always be about the cross. From there, Paul asks the question, was Paul baptized for you or was Paul crucified for you? Was Apollos crucified for you? Certainly not. And he talks about their understanding contrasted with the world's wisdom. And he sets up this perfect contrast of how the world and its wisdom is foolishness with God. And he asks those questions. Where is the wise? Where is the philosopher? Where is the debater of this age? 
And he asks those questions for a very specific reason. Because all of those, no matter how smart you think you are in this world, no matter how smart you work talking to the Jews and how much they knew the law, they were nothing in comparison to the wisdom of God. And as we close down in chapter 2, he, there's a perfect sentence as he transitions into chapter 3. As he's dealing with this mind of the world and the mind of God. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, before we go into chapter 3, it's very important to understand there are some things that seem a bit repetitive. And there is, the contrast is this. In chapter 2, Paul has been contrasting or talking about the revelation the apostles have and, the, and that he has that he has delivered in comparison to this worldly wisdom. In chapter 3, as he takes that phrase, but we have the mind of Christ, he now turns it to the church at Corinth, and he's talking about them and their fleshly carnal minds. And he's talking about them and their maturity that they should have attained, which they had not attained yet. So with that phrase, we have the mind of Christ, this is what Paul goes on to say. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual but as people of the flesh, as infants. He goes on to say, I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. But even so now, you are not ready for you are still in the flesh. Let's get the proper timeline and perspective here also. When Paul left Corinth and went to Ephesus, he didn't just leave them hanging. Paul sent Apollos back to them with a letter. He references later on that he's sending Timothy to them. In chapter 2, or, first, or 2 Corinthians, he talks about sending Titus to them. In the time frame that he had left and written this letter, it had been about two years. You're still babes. You've still not developed. You're still in the flesh. You are not spiritual. What does it mean to be spiritual? In Romans chapter 5 and verse or 8, chapter 5, it says. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is what it means to be spiritual. This is what Paul has been driving at. To be spiritual means you set your things on the mind of Christ. You don't set your things on the, on the things of this world. You put your mind in the right perspective. You put your focus in the right perspective. And you make it about Christ. You make it about growing. You make it about developing. And he says, this is the evidence of it. Here is the evidence. You're jealous. There's strife among you. Are you not just behaving in a human way? How is there any spirituality if you, in you if these things are what people see? You're nothing more than a mere human and there is no spirituality in you. That's a slap in the face if I've ever read one. He's talking about maturity and development in that maturity. The question is, what had hindered them in their maturity? Well, they hadn't taken that, that mind of Christ that Paul had delivered them and put it to use. They hadn't taken the words and the power of God's Word and put it in application. They hadn't done anything to mature in spiritual way. Many years ago, when I was a young boy, I had this natural knack for drawing. I gave it up when I realized that my biological father also had a knack for drawing. Because I didn't want to be anything like my biological father. So I just I completely gave it up. A few years I picked that, I picked it back up. And these are some of the kind of pictures that I drew early on. And you'll see that they are they lack in a lot of ways. Lack in definition, angles, heads are too big, ears are too big, all of those things. 
But you know, over the years, I spent hours and hours drawing, drawing, watching YouTube videos. How do you develop this technique? How do you get light to shine this way? How do you do all of these things? And because of that, there was a maturity process that came in that. That at the beginning is vastly different than this at the end. It's because of the time spent, the effort spent, and the energy spent. Now it's okay to have effort, time, and energy spent into developing a, a drawing or something that helps you have comfort in this world, whatever the case is. But if you're not putting the effort, time, and energy into developing yourself with the mind of Christ, then what's all this for? You know, Paul references that they continue with this, he's continuing with this analogy, I belong to Paul and I belong to Paulos. And a definite understanding of their lack of maturity. As he goes on, he says, what, is, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Well, they're servants. They're the servants in whom you believed. They're the servants that delivered you that mind of Christ that he just referenced. They're the servants. They were the mouthpieces of God. They're the mouthpieces of Christ. It was him and Paul, or I planted Apollos water, but who eventually gave the increase? It definitely wasn't them. It was God. It was because of God that the increase happened. The growth happened. And that's a principle I think that we all understand. You know, in my home, we have flower beds out front and we water those or we plant those seeds or we plant plants and then we water them, we tend to them. But there's nothing that we can do that gives them growth. What actually gives them growth? Once again, it's the power of God. It's the creation that He set in place that enables my plants to grow. Not me, not going out and talking to my plants each morning. That doesn't make them grow. Because if they did, they would probably wither away because I yell at them more than I do anything. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And this is a reaffirmation of what Jesus taught throughout the Gospels. All Christian servants are equal, and they're equal before God. Each servant will receive his wages based upon his labor. I'm not accountable for Jason's labor. Jason's not accountable for my labor. Although he has a different measure of accountability, I guess, because he's an elder. We're not going to go down that path this morning, though. But I don't get paid. My wages aren't paid based on what Jason does. And vice versa. And what Paul is establishing here is a principle that they were severely overlooking. And that they were misunderstanding and puffing themselves up and trying to establish themselves over one another. He's saying, you guys are on the same level. You need to be getting together, growing and developing in one another, and you need to be spreading this kingdom further. Instead, you're devolving. You know, Paul talks about here, he says, you are God's field. And then he transitions to God's building. So he's using two illustrations here. He uses the field, and then he also uses a building. And he talks about this master building, according to the grace that was given to him, like a skilled master building, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. Now, I can't really relate to a master skilled builder at all. I've done some things around the house that are sufficient, I guess. But I don't, if you've ever been in the foresman's home, when you walk in the entryway, they've got this sweet clock that Chris built, that Chris made. Now, and if you go around other places in his home, Chris is like, I made this, I made this, I made this. He's made all of these wonderful, cool things. But I don't imagine that, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but I don't imagine Chris looks at something and goes, eh, 
I'm just going to throw it together. I imagine Chris has a plan, also knowing Chris and his engineering mind, that he comes up with a plan and he says, these things need to be cut this long, these things need to be done. And there's a process and all of that. So that is a skill that he's doing. And Paul is talking about the very same thing. That he took time and nurtured all of this process and that he was doing like a skilled builder. It wasn't just something that was thrown together. That there was effort, energy, and thought. All of those things that were applied to the church at Corinth. But more importantly, he drives home another point. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation in Paul's mind. The church at Corinth had gotten into this place in which others were trying to build upon their own foundation, which is obvious from the context of what he's saying. You're trying to establish people following after you and what you think. You've allowed the world to come in and corrupt this very kingdom, this portion of the kingdom, because you're trying to get people to follow after you. The foundation is the very thing that he established all the way back in chapter 2, whenever he said, I came to you knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That is the foundation. That is everything. You take from that and you grow and you build upon that. Their failure was they were refusing to build upon it, and their failure was what they were building upon it. Those that were, weren't doing it properly because of what he says next. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So Paul talks about this foundation, the foundation and establishment of being Christ, the very thing in which you build upon. And then he talks about the different materials that can be used to build upon it. There's precious stones which aren't easily consumed in fire. And then there, are, there is wood and hay and straw, those things which are easily consumed in fire. And then he says about, for the day will disclose... What you are will be made known in the day that it will disclose. And that word day is capitalized. Did you notice that? Man, that threw me for a loop. I looked at the word day and it was capitalized. I was like, well, he's definitely, he's talking about judgment. That's what he's talking about. Then as I went through and worked through my studies some more, that didn't make sense. And then as I went back and, you know, looked at the Word and then started studying the other places the Word was in, to be completely honest, I don't know why it's capitalized. The day he's talking about, though, there is the day of trial, the day of struggle, the day of temptation. The master builder that is building, he's building with different materials. Are those materials going to withstand temptation and trials? When the fires come, are they going to withstand that fire? Because ultimately, you look in this room right here, there are plenty of people that would be in the hay category. There are plenty of people that would be in the precious gold category. We're not all in the same group. We're not all in the same category. The beauty of it is we can move from hay to gold. But are we going to withstand the fire? That's the question he's asking them. If anyone builds on that foundation and survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but although he himself will be saved. So Paul, when you think about what he's talking about, is the reality that there is loss. There was loss in the life of Christ. He lost Judas. Judas did not survive in the day of temptation. He crumbled. He withered like straw and fire. The question he's wanting them to see is which one are you? 
The question I would ask you today is, which one are you? When struggles in this life come along, do you crumble? Do you wither away like hay in a fire? When your faith is challenged, do you burn easily? Or do you stand up and stand strong? You only get to that point where you're standing strong through maturity. One of the greatest lies Western Christianity has sold to people is that you can mature apart from Christ and His Word. That you can go about life and you can develop and you can have all of these emotions and feelings and all of this feel-good stuff apart from that mind of Christ that Paul talked about, and you're going to grow and you're going to develop. I'm here to tell you that is one of Satan's biggest lies that he's put on our culture. I worked in the funeral industry for years, and I got to see it time and time again. When tragedy would come, the number of people's faith that would just go through the floor because they were trying to develop in a spiritual sense apart from the mind of Christ, and they were not maturing. But I also had the opportunity to see a lot of people's faiths in the time of death and struggle and anguish rise up. And it was those that were mature and strong in their faith. And they weren't doing it apart from Christ. You see, our world has the same problem that Corinth did on a much larger scale, where it's been accepted that the world can influence our spirituality and think that we're okay. And Paul says we're not. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, Paul is talking in a collective mindset, all of them individually, as he's just shown, and then collectively he brings them together. Now, this is a warning for what is going on in Corinth. That you had people puffing themselves up, putting themselves in positions they ought to not put themselves in. And this is a warning for them. You are actively pursuing a trail of destroying the Lord's temple. You are trying to destroy the church. For only one reason, and that's jealousy and arrogance. In this moment of warning, Paul also uses this as an opportunity for us to have self-reflection. He says, let no man deceive himself. If there's any of you that think that you're wise in this age, let him become a fool. For the wisdom of this world is folly. That principle that he established back in chapter 2, that the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. He quotes a couple of passages from the Old Testament. He says, He catches the wise in their craftiness. He's talking, he's referencing the book of Job in Job chapter 5 and verse 3. And then he references Psalms 94 when he says, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. It's kind of like what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 17 about the heart that. There is not an innate spirituality in the heart of man, that the heart of man is corrupt. So the heart and the mind are both in a, under examination here. And neither one of them in their natural state are ones that want to appeal to God or come to God. In their natural state, they are corrupt. In the natural state of all the wisdom and grandeur, things of great grandeur that this world has come up with, God says it's all futile. 
It's useless and worthless. So let no one boast in men. Referencing once again Jeremiah, as Jeremiah talked about those things we ought not to boast in. That we shouldn't boast in our power, that we shouldn't boast in our strength, that we shouldn't boast in our wealth. Paul drives that even further home and says, you should boast in no man. It wasn't Paul, it wasn't Apollos that gave the increase, it was God. Therefore, your boasting is fruitless, it's wasteful. Your boasting should only be in one thing and one thing only, and that is God. And His plan and what Christ has done for you, and you boast in that foundation that you are actively building upon. In Mark chapter, in Mark chapter eight and verse thirty-five, Paul references, or excuse me, Christ references there the fact that we need to understand what it means to fully serve Him. And that we not take for granted what we have as far as what we've been given in this world. And Paul kind of brings that all together here. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. There are eight things that Paul lists there that he says are yours. Do you know what the summation of those eight things are? That is the totality of everything that God wants built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, Everything that I have is yours. Everything that Paulos has is yours. We're giving this to you. We're freely giving all of this over to you. It belongs to you. The question becomes, what are you doing with it? An examination of Paul's life and the struggles that he went through and all of the apostles' lives and what they went through to give us the mind of Christ. What are you doing with it? Whenever you consider what Christ went through so that you could have salvation, so that you could have His mind, what are you doing with it? Do you cast it aside? Do you think about it every once in a while? Is it something that maybe you think about a few times a week when you attend assemblies? Or is it an active building process each and every day in your life? Building upon that foundation that Christ gave for us. Paul lets us know how the apostles should be viewed. Whenever he says, this is how one should regard us, that you should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. And he says, goes on to say, it is, very, it is required of those that are stewards that they be found faithful. Now that's a principle that Christ established over and over again in the apostles also. Or not the apostles, the gospels also. That those that are stewards of their portion of the kingdom have a responsibility and are accountable for it. Paul, this section as Paul turns to, does, it, kinda, it doesn't really make sense at this juncture as you read it up to this point. But what Paul is beginning to do is lay some foundations for a rebuttal or a response on the authority of his apostleship. He does this in 1 Corinthians. He does it again in 2 Corinthians. This defense of his apostleship. 
And he's beginning to lay that groundwork here because there are some questions that have been sent back to him. There's been accusations that have been made against him, some of those things being that he was foolish. And he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of, every, of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, before we go on, this is a, a lesson in context. The number of times a sentence like chapter verse 4 says, it is the Lord who judges me is lifted out of its context and applied to us today is not what Paul is talking about. You know, we unfortunately take that and go, I can do whatever I want. It's God that judges me. You're right. <laughs> you have the choice to do what you want. And it is God that judges you, but it's not in the way that we think. Because he's going to judge us according to his standard. And Paul is talking about the fact that he doesn't care, and I don't want to say he doesn't care, what they think about his apostleship really doesn't matter. There's nothing that he can say or nothing that he can do that can acquit himself because ultimately, it's God that's going to judge him. It's God that's going to hold him accountable for his actions. It's God that's going to hold him accountable for the things that he taught. And the same goes for us. We work because what we know we need to do, not because what everybody thinks else is right or how people are going to view us and judge us. Paul went through a lot of judgment from the church at Corinth because of his desire to help them grow. You know, we go through a lot of judgment because there's a lot of people that have a lot of ideas of what Christianity is. When people know you're a Christian, oftentimes there's a, a certain level of scrutiny that comes with it. And that should be true. And we shouldn't push back on that. We should invite that and welcome that. And you're going to see why as Paul begins talking about imitating himself in the next chapter. Our concern isn't men. Paul's concern wasn't man. It wasn't the judgment that the leaders, air quotes there, at Corinth that had established themselves were saying about Paul. But it was about what God wanted. What is Paul talking about there when he's talking about this judgment, and this process. He's talking about motivation. What motivates you to do what you do? The church at Corinth, a lot of them, what was motivating them was worldly things. It was a desire to lift themselves up and elevate themselves above others. It was a desire to have different spiritual gifts. It was a desire to say, my spiritual gift is better than your spiritual gift. That was their motivation. What is your motivation today? What motivates you to live a godly life? What motivates you to stand for the principles of Christ? What motivates you to be a teacher? What motivates you to be an elder? What motivates you to be a deacon? What motivates you to be a song leader? Because if it's anything other than Christ and Him crucified, it's the wrong thing. The scrutiny that Paul placed on the church at Corinth should be the same scrutiny in which we place upon ourselves. And it should be a hard look. And it should be an uncomfortable look. But that's the only way we grow and develop and mature. Who will bring the things to light now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? There's going to come a time when all is going to be revealed. 
my motivation for teaching is going to be revealed. And it's going to be revealed before God. And I'm going to have to answer for that motivation. So this is the application. I have applied all these things to myself and Paulos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. This is where Paul has beautifully taken this entire letter. And you think about the admonishment, you think about the question on motivation, and then he flips it and says, now here's the application of it all. I've taken these things and I've applied them not only to myself, but I've also applied them to Apollos. And I do this for a reason. That you may learn to not go beyond what is written. If there's something that our world needs to hear more now so than ever, is that we don't need to go beyond what God has written. It is sufficient. It is enough. It is the power in which saves mankind and gives them salvation. Why would we need to go any further? The only reason you would need to go further is to elevate oneself. Which is clearly what was going on in Corinth. This is, a, this is something that has been reiterated over and over again throughout these first four chapters. Do not listen or follow after human wisdom. Stay to the Scripture. Stay to the mind of Christ. Do not apply worldly wisdom. Don't try to justify yourself or exceed what is written. Don't go beyond the Word of God. And there's a purpose in what he's doing. This application and this principle, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul asks a very good question. Is there any difference in you? Is there any difference in your life? In Philippians chapter... Oh man, I messed that up. Chapter 3 and verse 12, I'm gonna, it says, Not that I have already obtained this or am, am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider I, that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies behead, ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul says, I'm not perfect and I'm not complete. And he's saying the same thing here. But he's driving home a point. How are you any different? On one side of Christ, is your life any different than it was on the other? You know, I've told you, when my wife and I first became Christians, we had this very worldly view of if we were doing better. <laughs> and there were things like we would say, well, you know, we only got drunk once this week. We didn't, the other six days we're good. That's the wrong mindset. We were very foolish. That's a very immature way of looking at things. Really, was our life any different on one side of Christ than it was the other? So, Paul introduces something here that when you read a lot of his writings, you don't get. And I'm going to tell you this for two reasons. Once again, back to that context thing. Paul introduces sarcasm. Lifted out of context, 
this passage, and in my studies, I read a lot of different things, and I read many things about when this lifted out of context, that this is viewed in a positive way. And as we read this, I want you to understand, this isn't positive. This is sarcasm. Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And what is that you did reign so that we might share rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, we are, but we in disrepute. You represent the, in the, in the present hour, we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When we're viled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, the refuse of all things. Garbage. Now, when lifted out of context, that might sound like Paul's saying, yeah, this is what it is. We're doing all of these things so that you can become these things. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's being sarcastic. How is it that you can go, well, I'm rich. How can you say that Paul's a fool and that you're wise in Christ whenever you don't even understand the basic principles of Christ? You sit here and you cast all of these accusations against Paul, but you don't look at the fact that it is Paul that's in hunger. That's Paul that's in homeless. That Paul that is working everywhere he's gone. This isn't to show them so that you've got all of these wonderful things and I've been living homeless and without food and destitute and the world wants to kill me and the world wants to cast me aside like garbage so that you can just be lifted up. That's not what he's saying. If you recall, he's been talking about them being in this together. And the admonishment that he has been giving to them was with them in gather, together. He reflected on that whenever he talked about them being in weakness and in trembling and in fear in chapter 2. They needed to understand that they were following after human wisdom and human desires, and you were saying, I have all of these things, and here's Paul over here. In Revelations chapter 3 and verse 16, he says there, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, Pitiful, 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 poor, blind, and naked. This was the exact same thing that Corinth needed to recognize. You think you have all of these great things, but at the end of it, you're weak and you're wretched because you're trying to do it apart from Jesus Christ. We're no different today. There are so many prosperity doctrines that are out there that Christ wants you to be rich, that He wants you to be wealthy. There's so much denial of self-examination and looking at sin. When that's what we need to be doing, that we realize that we're absolutely wretched and worthless when we don't have God. Because whenever we don't have that, this is what happens. We puff ourselves up and we don't realize our position. After all this sarcasm, Paul shows his softer side. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And he talks about the fact that he was their father in a spiritual sense. And then he encourages them in something. He encourages them to be imitators of Him. I urge you, therefore, then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you 
of my way in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul wanted them to understand that this is a very fatherly, affectionate moment for him. And if you're a parent, you understand this as well as anything. That there are times when you come to your child and there's different ways you approach whatever the problem is and there are times that you have to get in it a little bit. And especially as your children get older and have this ability to reason and you don't want them to reason, your tactics have to change. Paul is coming to them like this father to his children. And it's in a very loving and caring way. But he leaves them with this warning as he closes out chapter 4. He tells them that I'm going to be coming to you, Lord willing, I'm going to come to you and see you. And I will find out not with the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love and a spirit of gentleness? Oh, we can relate to that. We can relate to dealing with our children all day long with that. How do you want me to handle this? I can bring the wood or I can bring the love. Which one do you want, baby? I can do which one. But he talks there about the kingdom. And the power of the kingdom. And he says that the power of the kingdom is not in talk. What is the power in the kingdom in, in this case and what he's talking about? It's their lives. They had all of these people talking a lot of talk, but nobody was doing any walk. And he's going to come to them and he's going to put this to the test. Is your talk working or is your walk walking? At the end of all of it, he's going to get his answer. As we close this morning, we reflect on that kingdom for a moment. And that portion of the kingdom and the church and 1 Corinth and all the problems they had as Paul talked about that power in the kingdom. That word power is used a lot in 1 Corinthians. He's already, this is his fourth time to reference that word power. You know, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is also power in the lives of those building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful there's a large group of people here from La Prada this morning. Many years ago, my wife and I were caught up in the lights of Dallas, and we weren't living a godly life. Far from it. And it was through the power of the people that changed our lives. The church there in La Prada went and grabbed my wife and I and wouldn't let go. We spent holidays in their home. There was accountability whenever we weren't at church. There were phone calls. That was the power of God's people. That was the power that set my wife and I on the right path. And I want you to think about that power in your life today. The impact that you can have on somebody else and helping them through your maturity and your growth and your development and building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, the creation in which Christ created murdered Him and planted Him. 
What they planted was not with the intention of growth. What they planted was to get rid of it. But it was through the power of God that he was resurrected to a newness of life. And this morning, that same power is provided for you. When Christ told his disciples, all power is given given to me in heaven and earth, go ye therefore teaching and baptizing in my name. In Acts chapter 2, whenever Peter gave the first gospel sermon and the people were convicted and they said, what do we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. In Romans chapter 6, when he's referencing their baptism, he's talking about being resurrected to a newness of life coming out of that water. That the water itself holds no power, but it is the power of God that saves. And that same power is available to you. Have you submitted to that power? If not, why not? We have the opportunity to help you do that this morning. We also understand that there are times in life that we look at passages like this and we look at our own lives and we realize maybe we're not in a position of maturity where we need to be. Maybe we are floundering a little bit. Maybe we struggle. This is the power of God's people. You can be helped with that. Maybe you don't need, know, necessarily know the great principles of God's Word and you need help. We've got elders that can help you study with that. Maybe you need help in life. We have other people that can help you with that. We're not in this alone. We're in this together. This morning, if you need to submit yourself to the power of God in baptism, or if you need help in any way and we can offer prayers on your behalf, we'd ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.